we've taken our time, and I kind of want to lay out, I'm just going to talk for a few minutes before we even read, I want to lay out kind of where we're going from here, because we spent a lot of time uh, really laying the foundation for this study. So Revelation chapters 1 through 5, we've spent the last several weeks in those chapters, and that's for a reason. They're so important to set up how this book works. Um, Our premise is that Revelation tells us um, how reality works, and so we want to lay the foundation for how the book works because that's also the foundation for how like all of life works. This is what's going on behind the curtains. We're, we're peeking into the control room of the universe and we're seeing that there's real reality reflected in that throne room. And in that throne room is someone who is in control. And that's kind of where we're setting um, the foundation here. There's a lamb, as Pete helped us to see, who uh, is also a lion. And Jesus is this sacrificial lamb who now reigns as a victorious king lion over all things. And he's in the throne room. And so John goes out of his way to establish that over and over again. Jesus is on the throne. And these seven churches who are receiving this letter originally needed to know that. They needed to know that someone's on the throne, that there's a throne room and someone's on the throne. And that there's a king because they were facing much suffering and persecution and they needed to know that God was actually even in control of their situations. So now, starting in chapter 6, things start to go a little bit nuts in Revelation. And, uh, and this is the part you've been waiting for, because it's, it's about to get wild. And we're going to read some passages tonight, uh, and over the next three weeks especially, that is just kind of like, just buckle up. Like, it's great, it's so good, and there's a lot we're going to get into. I'm excited about it. Um, But we're only going to be able to spend about three weeks in this whole middle section of the book because it's sort of Revelation 6 through 16 is all of this imagery. And we're going to go pretty quickly through that because I want to leave a lot of room on the back end for those beautiful final chapters. So, obviously, we could study Revelation your entire college career, which wouldn't be a bad idea. Um, And we still wouldn't really get to all of it. But even in one semester, we're not, not going to be able to do it all. So I hope that kind of laying the foundation here is going to help you out. Um, So here's what I want you to think about of what's happening now in these coming chapters. Remember we've said numbers are important in Revelation, and the number seven is very important. The number seven comes up a lot. There's seven churches receiving this letter that serve as seven lampstands in this throne room. There are seven spirits and a lamb with seven horns, and now there's going to be seven seals followed by seven angels playing seven trumpets right before their seven bowls. Like the number seven is over and over and over again. Even at the end of this passage that we'll see, this set of seven is going to almost like give birth to another set of seven. Just hang with me. We'll, we'll get there. I, it's one illustration that I got that has been helpful for me. This came from the Bible Project videos, which are great. Bible Project's an awesome resource. They talked about how the number seven sort of serves as like a Russian nesting doll of Revelation. Y'all, y'all ever have those as a kid, those, those nesting dolls where we have some at our house. I don't know where they're from. They look Russian. And it's like a babushka, right? That's grandmother. And you open one, and what's inside? There's another one, right? Like it's a painted grandmother. And then you open that one. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay. Because if you don't, this sounds super weird. You're just <laughs> opening a grandmother, and there's another grandmother. <laughs> Mother. And so you keep going through and they get smaller and smaller. Each one's painted a little bit different. You kind of get a different image with each one, but they're also the same. That's the idea. Um, 
Revelation is kind of working like that. When you get into this first set of seven that we're going to talk about tonight, as you uncover it and take the cap off, you realize there's more. There's another set of seven. (laughs) And then you study that one. It's a little bit different, but also it's the same. And you get a little bit more information, and then you uncover that one, and then there's more. And that's what's happening now in Revelation, where it's going to go deeper and deeper, and we're going to get more information as we're going along. Because what's happening, and I'm giving you a little bit of my view of Revelation here. There's a lot of different views of how Revelation works. This is sort of mine, um, and, uh, you know, I didn't make it up. I'm in line with a lot of smart people over the years. But it's sort of that Revelation, over these next several sections, is telling the same story over and over again. It's kind of a recapitulation. Like it's telling the same story over and over again, but you're getting more information and sort of new camera angles at at each uh, chapter. That's helpful as you think about it and as you read. And I hope you are reading along. If you're not, definitely start reading this week because we're going to start flying. We're going to 12 next week. So go ahead and read over the course of this week. So Revelation means unveiling. It means apocalypse, which means sort of pulling back the curtain, right? And so what we see is that each chapter we're getting a new perspective, a new unveiling, new information about what's going on in heaven. To take another illustration, I'm, I'm picking up on what Pete uh, brought up the other day with uh, a couple weeks ago when he was talking about Sports Center. Remember, Pete was talking about how Sports Center would uh, air the same show four or five times in the morning. I was in the 90s, and that's exactly how Sports Center worked forever until they started making new shows. So here's what I would say. I'm going to take Pete's analogy and go further. Revelation is working like that Sports Center re-airing, except... With every re-airing, the second episode adds a new segment. And actually, it goes back, and everything that they showed in the first episode, now they're showing the same plays of that baseball game or that basketball game from a new camera angle, too. Okay? Same story. But now you're getting it from a new perspective. And then you go to the third episode, you're getting the same story, now new camera angles and another segment. That's, That's Revelation. Is that helpful? It's been really helpful to me to think about it this way. Here's why I say all this. Before we read our passage, or at least the first part of it, Eugene Peterson has written a ton of great books, and he wrote a book on Revelation. And he said, we don't read Revelation to get new information. We read Revelation to fire up our imagination. I think that's a really beautiful quote. What God is revealing to John, who's giving to the churches and now to us, is is a view, it's a, it's a revelation, an unveiling to fire up our imagination to understand what's really going on. And this is why John promised, if you were with us week one, no worries if you weren't, if you're with us week one, we talked about this promise right at the top where John said, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. And so we want to be blessed people. And so we are reading, and we are hearing, and hopefully we are keeping these words. And so that's what we want to happen tonight as we sort of scan through chapters 6 through 8. I'm reading sections from each one. We want our imaginations to sort of fire up of what's really going on. And specifically where we're going to land tonight is what is going on in the world with all of the evil. And specifically, what is going on with all of the injustices that abound in this world? What do we make of that as Christians? That's what this section of Revelation is going to get at. Now, I'm going to read a lot, but I'm going to read half of it now and half of it later. So actually, we put it on the screen tonight. Caitlin was nice enough to do this. So we're going to look at 
the evils of injustice, Revelation 6, 1 through 11. Let's see if we have it here. Very good. I'm going to move. So if you'll remember in chapter 5, John wept because he saw these scrolls that basically contain, the scrolls contain the history of the world, the history of all things, the history of your life. The scrolls contain your life and the life of your children and your children's children. It's all things contained in these scrolls. And John looks around and he sees no one is able to open the scrolls. In other words, no one's in charge at first in that vision, right? But then he saw the Lamb. And then the Lamb began to break the seals of the scrolls. Now, I don't exactly know what to picture, but I sort of am picturing like a king's authorized wax seal that would go across an important document. And so the seal is the unveiling of what's in that scroll. So there's seven seals and we're getting more information with each one. Does that kind of make sense? That's what's going on here in this vision. What does the scroll reveal? Well, first it's four riders. Now, if you've ever heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, this is them. You just heard about them. I first heard the four horsemen term in the 90s from WWE. There were these famed wrestlers called the Four Horsemen, Arn Anderson, Ric Flair, later it was Lex Luger and Sting. Anyone? Nope. Okay, cool. This is when we realized I was in the 90s and you weren't. Um, This is not them. (laughs) Four Horsemen is kind of like a pop culture term. You probably hear of it in, I don't know, maybe there's TikToks about Four Horsemen, who knows. But it's not them. These four horsemen are bad, bad, bad news, right? Um, What we hear these four riders on these four horsemen doing is they are uh, wreaking havoc across the world, which is part of the meaning of the symbolic number four. It's very short. Four means sort of total, comprehensive as it comes up in uh, Revelation is sort of representative of all the earth. You think about the four corners or four directions or the four winds. These are four riders who are essentially bringing total destruction on the earth. And they're doing it in four different arenas. Very quickly, the first rider is a white horse um, whose rider had a bow and a crown. He comes out like a conqueror. He's a rider who comes to bring power and to yield his power to seize nations. Okay, the second rider comes on this red horse. Why red? Because it's the color of blood. He's bringing tremendous bloodshed across the earth. Awful slaughter. This is a rider who comes to bring war. The third rider is a black horse. This one was interesting. Maybe it stood out to you as we read it. Who holds scales? Like, what is that? It's like food scales. He's measuring food, like in a grocery store kind of thing. And what you see in this measurement is that the price of grain is deeply inflated. That's basically the point here. The price of grain is deeply inflated, and the price of oil and wine is basically untouched. Um, Scholars say that there's an important contrast being shown here. It's sort of like in our, this is just my dumb version. It's like I looked up, so uh, this would be a day's wages for, um, for wheat, which would be too much, like one full day's worth of money to buy some wheat. That would be too much. It would be too bad for people who do not make much money. 
And so in today's terms, I looked it up today, median income divided by the number of days of the year is somewhere around $150 in America per day. That would be like ramen noodles costing $150. Okay, that's my illustration. It fails. All right, but the point is, there's a contrast being shown that the poor are getting poorer and the rich are getting richer. There's a marginalization happening here. This writer is bringing economic injustice across the earth. Okay, the fourth is this horrible pale horse. This is like a corpse-like color, symbolizing that this rider is bringing disease and sickness and death across the earth. So that's what the riders are doing. In short, these riders are bringing awful evils into this world. Evils of oppression, evils of war, injustices and death, and it's total in its reach. It's across the whole earth. And as we see in the fifth seal, that even the followers of Jesus were not exempt from their evil. Did you catch that? The martyrs, verse 9 said, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. And for the witness that they had borne, and they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is a cry, a prayer for justice. These are the martyrs, those who had followed Jesus over the years who have been killed. And so even God's people, as John well knows, and as these original churches well know, are not immune to the evils in this world. They have been deeply affected. They are not spared. And so really it's a horrible picture, right, painted for us. We can hopefully relate even to some degree to the cries of these martyrs. How long, O Lord? I wonder if there are times where you look around and you just see injustice after injustice, evil after evil. Death wars, pain and suffering, and you, and you ask that question, you pray that prayer, how long? How long, O Lord? Part of the application of this part of Revelation is, is almost to challenge us, do we have eyes to see the way things really are? Do you actually have eyes to see the injustices that abound in our world? I was looking up some stuff to think about where we are right now, if we just look around the world the evils of injustices that abound at every level. We could do this for hours and hours, of course. I'm not a lecturer in this way, but I was just thinking about ongoing conflicts alone. Um, our prayer team does such a great job of putting things on our handout and in the email every single week of things we can pray for, and they reminded us that this week to pray for the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Of course, there are wars in other nations, wars in northern Benin, Papua New Guinea, Ethiopia, Myanmar, nations, conquering nations every day, wars and rumors of wars, as Jesus said. Think of the evils and the injustices and death, even in our own land. Mass shootings. This year alone, in Uvalde, Buffalo, Tulsa, Highland Park, and more and more and more and more. Those are just sort of four of the biggest news stories this year. 
Injustices abound. The third, that third rider really hits me too because I, I was thinking, I mean, this is a snapshot of systemic economic injustice. And no doubt there are plenty of snapshots we could pull from, from our own country or others. Surely I'll imagine in your studies, some of you are looking at these kind of things and you're seeing where systems are broken. Like when we say systemic injustices, that just means systems aren't perfect and people are being affected in negative ways. That's happening, of course, in our own country in various ways. I was thinking about living on the other side of COVID, what we are seeing in our own country as a result in many different arenas, um, the marginalized becoming more marginalized, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer. Um, I woke up to some of this reality in the education system over the last couple of years through talking to some of you who are helping me to understand how COVID is affecting schools. Um, I, think, I think maybe I shared this in another setting, but I remember talking to um, uh, Mr. Holton, the director of Call Me Mister here on campus, um, early fall 2020. And I asked him the question as we're coming into that school year, that year, some of you were going into you know, your junior or senior year or whatever at that point. And I remember asking him, how do you think COVID, because we're new in it at this point, how is COVID going to affect the education system? Just a dumb, simple question, right? And he said, oh, we won't know for 20 or 30 years, which I had not thought of. This, this is a man who's in the education system, who knows well, and, and the, the simple thing that he said to me was, it will take years and years before we realize how those who are already left behind will become so much further behind. And those who already had opportunities to get ahead will get so much further ahead. The divide is growing even greater. Apply that to any area, right? Like we can't argue some of these facts. We could go on and on, but it brings up an important question. And I think probably some of you are wondering this question as it comes to the book of Revelation. Does this mean that we're living in the end times? Have you all wondered that question yet? Does this mean we're in the end times? Um, well, the short answer is uh, yes, of course. Uh, we are definitely living in the end times. So you can go ahead and mark that down. We are in the end times. Uh, but for what it's worth, it's, it's my belief that we've been living in the end times for a very long time. This didn't just start in like 1989 or something. I don't know. Or whenever. No, no jokes. Never mind. I had bad jokes come to mind. Um, my conviction is that we've been living in the end times in a biblical sense since Jesus ascended. And the more biblical phrase instead of end times that I would prefer would be the phrase last days. Because this is a phrase that's actually used a ton in the New Testament if you start looking for it. Just put it in your phone, put last days into your Bible app search or whatever, and you will find countless passages that talk about the last days. The apostles themselves believed that they were living in the last days. And guess what? They were. And we still are. Because the biblical understanding of what last days is, I believe, is from Jesus' ascension to heaven to his coming back. These are the last days. I'll give you some verses you can jot down if you're taking notes. 1 John 2.18, 1 Peter 1.20, 1 Corinthians 10.11, I think there's people writing, I don't know. Jude 1.18, 1 
James 5, 3. Acts 2.17, Hebrews 1.2, ask me later if you want them. But a good summary of all those verses would be what Paul wrote to Timothy. So this is Paul writing to his kind of mentee Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.1. And he said this, listen, he says, understand this, in the last days there will come great difficulty. In the last days, there will come great difficulty. So let me just ask you this simple question. Have you ever experienced great difficulty? Do you have a sense that the world is broken? Do you have a sense that things are not the way that they're supposed to be? Do you have a longing for someone to fix it? It's because you recognize that we're living in the last days. What do we do about that? We'll talk about what we do here in a second. But I just want, I want you to feel the weight of these and other injustices that this passage is sort of raising for us because this is real reality. The writers are writing today. They are. Bringing divisions and wars and abusive power dynamics and economic and other systemic injustices. The world actually is broken and we feel it deeply in our bones. But I have some good news, of course, uh, that this passage is going to point us to. And it's simply this. Just because we are living in the last days, it does not mean we are living alone in the last days. And even, even more, don't forget about the throne room. Don't forget about the throne room. This is so important for John. The Lamb who holds the scroll, the Lamb who's breaking the seals, He has power. And we need to keep reading to see what he's going to do about it. So we've read the first five seals. Now I want to keep reading. We obviously are not about to break all that down. But I just want to say a couple of things about this. And I really hope that that washes over you a little bit. Like I hope it's a vision that sort of just captures your heart. More than me trying to summarize what's going on here. These are the promises of God for his people. Because what he's promising in that passage is that there's a day coming where injustice will end. There really is a day coming where the true and final king will right all the wrongs, where he will make the sad things come untrue, where he will bring justice to all of these places where the gross injustices have taken over. How does he do it? Well, he brings desolation. We'll talk about that as we go on. But what we see in that passage is that there's a day coming where those who curse the Lord will be cursed by Him. And those who take comfort in the Lord and who come to Him through Jesus will be spared of His wrath, where they will be kept. Now, I said earlier that God's people were not immune to the sufferings of the world. But, did you hear how they were sealed and a certain number were sealed? So they are not spared from the sufferings, but they are saved through the sufferings. And that's the great difference. They will be ultimately delivered. Ultimately, they will be with God in heaven. They will ultimately be crying out. And all of us who are in Jesus will be able to cry out in this throne room, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
That day's coming. We're going to talk more and more about that. Stay with us. But until then, we wait out these last days with the rest of God's people, martyrs and all. Why does God make us wait? Why does God allow all of this evil to persist? Why does God allow it to persist even in our own lives? We, of course, don't have a full answer. Um, We know that God allows suffering. We also know that He can end it at any point. We know that God works through suffering. This is the testimony of Scriptures from the beginning to the end. The cross is an example of that, of course. God works through injustice to bring salvation. But, why doesn't He stop sooner and intervene? Um, I want to offer a couple of thoughts about that. Because this passage gives us a hint. Uh, I was searching for this quote earlier this morning because it hit me and I finally found it. Of course, it was a Keller quote. It was in my head. And I was like, where's that from? And it's from Keller's book um, on, uh, called The Reason for God. But I wrote this down. I want to read you this. He says, If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because He hasn't stopped evil and suffering in this world, then at the very same time, you have a God great and transcendent enough to have reasons for allowing it to continue beyond your own understanding. It's a very challenging quote. So if we have a God that we can question, God, why haven't you stopped this yet? Then that means we understand that God is big enough to stop it, and maybe He has reasons that He is intending to use in the middle of some of the difficult things that we're going through. We get one of those reasons in this passage. Did you hear it? After those martyrs cried out how long, his answer was, a little while longer until the full number has come in. And then in chapter 7, we see the full number. In one place it says 144,000. And then right after that, did you notice it said innumerable? Which one is it? Is it a a known specific number that God knows who are His and who will be with Him one day? Or is it so great and so vast and so worldwide and so diverse, it's both, right? Those whom God knows exactly who will be with Him. And from our perspective, it is worldwide from every tribe, language, people group there in heaven. Why 144,000? I mean, I could give you my thoughts on that. I'll just say it. It's like this. It's 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. So just go with that. Y'all got it, right? Those numbers are important. But I'm not getting into the numbers thing. But after this, there's the full number who are brought in, who are delivered, this great multitude that no one can number, and they are with God. And they are covered in these white robes with all the saints throughout all the ages from every part of the world in the throne room. They are covered in white robes. How did they get in the throne room? This is a question we've been asking. Well, we have a hint. They are covered in white robes. And so these are the saints who are delivered, who are forgiven of their sins. The injustice of the cross meant Jesus took on the wars. Jesus took on the injustices. Jesus took on our sins. Jesus took on death. He took on the red and the black and the pale so that you could take on the white robes, His righteousness in heaven. 
And after this, what does the seventh seal reveal? Silence. Let me go back to something I didn't say that I meant to say, which was, why did God allow, why did he tell the martyrs just a little while longer? He said, until the full number has come in. Let me just suggest this to you. If Jesus would have come back in the 1990s, (laughs) you wouldn't be in heaven. It's kind of weird to think about, right? I mean, I might be. Could it be that God really does have a plan for your children, for your children's children? God is waiting. He is patient, and he is bringing people to himself throughout all ages. He could come back at any moment, and Jesus says he may come back at any moment. You need to be ready for him to come back at any moment. But God is patient, and he wants you to be with him. He is gracious in that way. Okay, back to the seventh seal. There's silence in heaven for about 30 minutes. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. But it's like, it's like for a short time, there's silence in heaven. And I think it's because it's sort of a reflective end. It's like and scene. And then, there's, then we're starting over with the story. The third episode of SportsCenter is starting next. Because we know worship continues throughout all eternity after this. All right, I want to end with this. Man, I've gone long tonight. I'm sorry. Can I try to give you two things that are fairly practical? If that's a glimpse of the future, what does it mean for us in the present? What do we do with all of this, in other words? I hope it's not just a bunch of theology, but what are some of the practical implications? The first is to simply know and believe this. Please know and believe this. God is inviting you to participate in his work of bringing justice into this world. That's the first. God is inviting you and me and RUF and FCA and crew and the churches and the churches and the church into this work of bringing real justice into this world. And so I want you to really think about who you are. This is not optional if you're a Christian. You are called to participate in the work God is doing to make things right in this world. And so your personality, your background, um, your interests, your major, your career. Your career does not exist to give you the happiest possible life on earth. It cannot. That is the most unbiblical idea possible, right? Because this is not our home as Christians. So that means your career has to exist for something so much bigger than that. How might God use your career to bring hope and peace and justice into this world? Whether it is education, you know, whether you're in the healthcare or engineering or business or art or whatever it is, God wants to use you to bring justice. That's number one. Number two, not only do we get to participate in doing justice, we get to participate in God's work by praying for justice. Now, that feels like a less important thing to do, maybe. But this is what the martyrs are doing. They're praying, God, how long? They're told to wait a little while longer. And then the reason I included the beginning of chapter 8 is because we're told a little while longer, after that seventh seal, an angel 
was given incense to offer the prayers of all the saints. Did you hear it in that passage? Of all the saints. So the prayers of all the saints are now coming into the throne room of God and being delivered to Him. Those are your prayers. Your prayers for justice are joining in the prayers of the martyrs in heaven. And they are being delivered into the throne room of God every time you pray. There's something incredibly powerful in these images and incredibly humbling. Because sometimes the most important thing we can do in this world is to not just do justice, but to pray for justice. And I really think that we have a hard time believing that that's true. Because sometimes I think doing is easier than praying. Um, But what this Bible passage is telling us is that praying is actually even more effective. I don't know how you think about prayer. I know how some of you think about prayer. I know how I think about prayer sometimes, which is it's inconvenient. (laughs) It's hard. Sometimes it's hard to focus. Sometimes you don't know what words to use. It's humbling. It's hard to be that quiet and, and to think. Sometimes we may even wonder, does it work? I'm not sure we're convinced that it works. If we were, I think we would pray more. And let me even say that as a confession, as a campus minister, but also as an organization. I think we're not convinced prayer works as a campus ministry. And here's why I'll say this. We do a lot of great events. We have eight ministry teams killing it this year. Y'all are planning super fun things, great opportunities to gather. Do you know what is, without a doubt, every semester, the second least attended thing that we do? Any guesses? Service projects. We got one this Saturday. Great opportunity to work and to serve. Do you know what, by a long shot, is the least attended thing that we host in RUF? Anything related to prayer. What does that say about what we believe about prayer? It could be that all of y'all are just like, y'all are praying in your prayer closet, and you're just like, Y'all are putting in the hours and you're like, I don't need RUF stuff. Couldn't mean that. But it also can mean we really struggle to believe that this is true. If we believe prayer really worked and was effective, then those two people who stand at the back with lanyards would have lines of people at the end of large group every week. Lines. Because it's like somebody's willing to pray with me right now. Do you know how much is on my mind? Please, let's pray. Um, we pray before large groups. In some ways, we should have more people doing that than sticking around in here afterwards listening to me. Um, we've got a prayer event coming. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just saying, do we really believe this stuff? Like, an application is to actually pray. I'll give you this illustration, then we're done. 
I remember one day when I was in elementary school. Um, this was actually not even the 90s. This was probably the late 80s. That's how old I am. So we're in the late 80s at this point, and I remember we were doing this campaign when I was in like second grade where the teachers convinced us that we could um, send balloons to the sky <laughs> and we could write a note and put it in the balloon and, and launch it and that perhaps, this was the selling point, on the other side of that launch would be another kid somewhere on the other side of the world who's going to receive my balloon. I don't know if it pops. I don't know if it just sort of floats down like Mary Poppins. But they receive my balloon and they get my note. And I'm like, hi, I'm Reed. <laughs> I live in Brundage, Alabama, America. And I, I remember the feeling of like, maybe... Maybe this will work, and I'll get, like, a pen pal from China. I don't know what I thought. I don't know if I also thought they would write a note and float it up, and it would take the same track. This is also, by the way, before we knew balloons, like, you know, were problematic and <laughs> killed turtles or straws or whatever they killed. I don't remember. Um, but I remember that feeling, that anticipation of like, maybe, you know, maybe there is somebody on the other side who's going to hear this, and maybe they'll even respond. My guess is that's how many of us think prayer works. We'll just send it up, kind of move on. Maybe, maybe it gets there, maybe it doesn't. Maybe one day somebody will respond. Revelation tells us that your prayers are not wasted. Your prayers, in Jesus' name, the only access we have to that throne room, your prayers through Jesus are always, always, always received. And they are hand-delivered to God. And actually we see in other places in Scripture that they are hand-delivered from Jesus. God the Son takes these prayers to God the Father and He says, this one is with me. And that's why we pray. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are the kind of prayers Jesus always responds to. Would you pray with me?